This is the Cybersecurity Cast, where we dive into the latest cybersecurity news, trends, vulnerabilities, and exploits for those already in the know and those who need to know. The Cybersecurity Cast is produced by Herjavec Group. Information security is what we do. We are an expert team of highly dedicated security specialists supported by strategic and emerging technology partners who are laser focused on keeping our enterprise customers cyber secure. As more and more consumers rely on using credit and debit cards for retail transactions, payment card data theft has become a hotbed for cybercriminal activity. In fact, a 2016 study from the EIT Group said that costs associated with card no present fraud will exceed to over $7 billion by the end of 2020. With that in mind, it is critical for enterprises to do everything possible to protect credit card data. So joining us today, we have David Munhank, who works out of our U.S. office. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm actually an, a multi-certified cybersecurity professional with 20 plus years of experience. And while I've worked in virtually every cybersecurity discipline, I've specialized uh, most recently in protecting payment processing systems, including those involving payment cards and loyalty cards and things like that for about 13 plus years now. So that means that you probably work with a lot of businesses that might have retail locations or might require credit card information and other sorts of personal data from their customers? Correct. Absolutely. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about why enterprises need to care about payment processing systems? You bet. Years ago, uh, the individual payment card brands, uh, the major ones, and there are five of those, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, and JCB, had their own individual cybersecurity programs and credit card information protection programs. And these former competitors decided that a lot of their clients and a lot of businesses and merchants and service providers were having a bit of difficulty trying to figure out which particular security framework to salute. And so these normally almost warring parties decided to sit down and take the best and and most unique and uh, most qualitative aspects of each individual program and, and found what's known as the PCI DSS, the PCI Data Security Standard. It's actually been around for 10 plus years now. And the net is that any entity that stores, processes, or transmits uh, cardholder information are required by payment card industry to salute the PCI DSS and all of its requirements. So it's kind of like a compliance requirement. It is absolutely a compliance requirement. So can you actually clarify, if possible, what the difference is between a compliance requirement and a regulation? Absolutely. So typically regulations are generated and disseminated by governmental entities. It could be federal, state, local. At the end of the day, merchants and service providers who are trying to deal with regulatory requirements, they have no choice. If they want to be in business, they have to uh, essentially address and salute the requirements. Compliance requirements is considered to be an industry standard. Technically, could be considered to be optional, but at the end of the day, that's part of your business models to to process transactions, both from credit cards and debit cards, and then it's really not an option. So it's very important for businesses in that case if they want to keep up their transaction with debit and credit cards because a lot of, as hackers, you could say, are going after credit card information, debit information. You know, a few years ago, Home Depot got breached, Target has been a victim, and the consequences are phenomenal when it comes to businesses. Like, C-level executives are losing their jobs because of breaches like this. Absolutely, and some corporations are taking such a financial hit as a result of breaches and loss of theft of data uh, that some of them have, have actually had to file bankruptcy. So there's a very famous quote from a gentleman who was a former bank robber. And his saying was, uh, when people would ask him why he robbed banks, and he said, well, that's, that's where the money is. And uh, that's essentially 
historically speaking, why people have gone after credit card information because they can actually, if they can, if they can steal that effectively and not get caught, then they can instantly turn that into cash by um, vending that in, in various uh, not so pleasant places in the internet and the dark net. Aside from, you know, complying with PCI DSS, what other steps can enterprises take to secure their systems? Well, the first and foremost step in that right direction is to try to figure out to what extent your business is actually processing credit card uh, information and to what extent that information is actually being handled uh, throughout the lifetime or life cycle of payment card transaction. That typically starts us with known as the point of interaction. We actually take out your card and you insert it into a, a, a payment terminal or it's, it's swiped or um, you know the chip is inserted and the, and the card is read. It starts there, uh, translates through the network, and it will go off into the internet and will go to some payment processing provider who will, you know, in turn pass that off to the appropriate bank for authorization or declination, if you will. And once the transaction is completed, then a lot of businesses choose to store uh, certain aspects of what's known as the sensitive data elements within the PCI DSS. And there's a requirement that if you're going to, if you're going to choose to do that, there's a requirement to actually store that data securely. And there are various means to do that. But at the end of the day, responsibility falls uh, upon the merchant or service provider who handles that information, and they are held accountable by the various card brands. In addition to that, the card brands themselves still maintain those individual credit card security programs, if you will. So on top of having to salute and being required to comply with the PCI DSS, merchants and service providers may and sometimes do have to encounter and comply with additional security requirements that are imposed by the card brands. So this is, once again, it's not optional. If you want to do business with credit cards, the industry has made it such that you have to salute these requirements. You said that businesses can choose to store certain Correct. sensitive data. So Correct. why would I, as a business, choose to store that data? What am I getting from that data? Well, that's a very great question. So way back before the PCI DSS came into being and, 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 and businesses initially started trying to process credit card transactions, in addition to that, their business strategy people and their marketing people, their look, they were looking for some unique identifying marker scar by which they could identify their clients and customers. So what could be more unique than a 16-digit credit card number or 20-digit debit card number associated with the actual username of the owner of that card? And before these requirements existed, a lot of these businesses essentially were using that credit card number and that name to populate various aspects of their um, business delivery systems and their payment systems and their settlement systems, not realizing that they were actually propagating the sensitive in information throughout their IT environment. And in most instances, they weren't properly protected. So there's this concept of what's known as PCI scope. And what that entails is trying to determine how much uh, credit card in information is being processed, if it is being stored, what types of information are being stored. Um, there are two types of information, sensitive information, that are associated with uh, the PCI DSS. There's what they call the type one information. And that, th those particular data elements include things like uh, the account number, the username, various service codes, and that's considered to be type one. And the PCI DSS says it's actually okay to store that information, but you have to suitably protect it. Then there's type two, which is uh, additional card information that once you've processed the transaction, you're not allowed to store that information under any circumstance, even if you protect it or encrypt it. 
and whatnot. So if you take the type 1 information and combine that with the type 2 information, and you can abscond with that and take that off and, and translate that through one of the carding market websites that I talked about previously, it makes it easier to uh, generate new cards and create fraudulent transactions. So very smart people decided a long time ago that the less you handle this information, fewer uh, areas where you propagate this information throughout your business systems, the lower your risk will be of a potential compromise and a potential exposure from a compromise. So the trend is to process the transaction, try not to store any of those sensitive data elements if possible. And of course, that makes it a less desirable target for uh, hackers and, uh, and fr- people trying to perpetrate fraud. Right. Makes sense? Yep. So... PCI is pretty much like a roadmap to what businesses can do, cannot do, what type of information they can store. And I'm assuming that they have to audit themselves for compliance every year, every two years. In some instances, businesses can self-assess. And there's a whole scheme and a set of documents and processes for that. Primary document is called a self-assessment questionnaire. However, if you process more than uh, a certain threshold of transactions, then the, the, the card brands and the other entities require that an outside, independent, qualified security assessor firm, like her Duvet Group, come in and actually do that for you. At the end of the day, it's sort of, um, once there's a determination made that all the requirements are in place, then both the qualified security assessor firm will attest to compliance and sign off on that. And typically, a corporate official is required on the business entity side to also sign off on that. But in those instances, the, uh, the, the business entity is not allowed to actually assess themselves. But if you're under that threshold, then you can do a self-assessment questionnaire. Uh, now, the PCI DSS requirements also recently got updated. There were some new additions, or were there improvisations that were added as of February 1st? So the current version of the PCI DSS is version 3.2. And when it first came into being and became applicable, I think a little over a year ago, there were some requirements in there that were going to be a bit of a stretch for some businesses to actually try to accommodate and make sure they were compliant with in a short period of time because in some instances they were going to have to actually impart significant change in their environment. Realizing this, PCI Standards Council and also the, uh, the card brands decided let's give folks a grace period to make sure they have a plan in place and they can properly implement proper controls without you know, significant interrupting to the business. And those are divided into two categories. And so what merchants are required to salute a certain set of requirements for, uh, for the PCI data security standard. But service providers actually have a higher bar of compliance. Essentially, they are required to salute even more additional compliance requirements that kind of raise the bar even more with respect to risk management and security. So for uh, merchants, a couple of the, uh, I think the only two that really applied to them, one was uh, essentially, and I'm going to quote here, there's a PCI DSS version 3.2 requirement 6.4.6, and it says that upon completion of any significant change to an environment, especially the cardholder data environment, all relevant PCI DSS requirements must be implemented on all new and changed systems and networks, and documentation needs to be updated as appropriate. So as we all know, IT environments are constantly changing. Internet and cyber time is measured in milliseconds, not days, weeks, and years. So it's important that people essentially make sure that when they're making changes to the environment or they're installing new equipment, that they accommodate that within all their other processes. At the end of the day, as we know, all, all all these environments are highly dynamic. Before this requirement really was inferred, if you will, it was considered to be a best practice. 
And then the PCI Council and the card brands gave businesses and, ser- and service providers, you know, a grace period to try to salute that so they can actually become compliant at a certain point in time. The second one is, and it's kind of an interesting concept, that's requirement 8.3.1 that says incorporate multi-factor authentication for all non-console access into the cardholder data environment for personnel with administrative access. But let's talk first about multi-factor authentication. Two-factor authentication is considered to be, you first have to apply the single factor, which is your username and something you know, and then the second factor is something you have. So that something that you would have could be a digital fingerprint, a biometric fingerprint, it could be a digital certificate, it could be a software or hardware token, it could be a one-time password. What they're trying to do is increase the complexity uh, and the degree of difficulty for non-authorized users to try to access what they call administrative accounts. If hackers can compromise an administrative account, then essentially they have the keys to the kingdom and they can do some really bad stuff. A lot of businesses are really struggling with this or, or anticipating struggling with this one, especially legacy environments where they have mainframe computers and mid-range systems. You may have anywhere from 10 to 100 or 200 people who are logging into a, a mainframe, and the mainframe virtual or logical access criteria or schemata um, don't necessarily lend themselves very well to multi-factor authentication. So this one has actually been quite painful for, for a lot of customers. Now, the, the last aspect of this may be a bit fuzzy for folks is what does non-console access mean? Console access is essentially sort of a legacy concept whereby a lot of the IT systems have grown up over the years that have sort of um, an auxiliary port on the actual hardware device, and it's called a console port. And typically, you can actually connect to that with a computer or a laptop, and that drops you right into the basically the, the intimate details and, and capabilities of that system you're trying to log into. That implies that you have physical access to that system. Any other logical access to a system is called non-console access. And for anyone who's going to be logging into or maintaining systems that once again store, process, or transmit cardholder information, you have to have multi-factor authentication in place. Now, you're on the security consulting team, so I assume you've seen a lot of different networks. What I'm curious about then is... What is the difference when you're looking at a larger enterprise that's trying to secure their payment processing systems compared to smaller businesses? Like, Is there a difference in the first place? And if so, who's coming out on top? That's a great question. And um, it kind of cuts across some of the challenges of trying to implement a global security standard across uh, what's called a hierarchy of, of businesses, if you will. So if, if you think about it, most large businesses have medium to large scale IT staffs, they typically have risk management contingents and things like that. So most of the time, not always, but most of the time, those organizations are well aware of their PCI DSS requirements, uh, and they incorporate those in their existing security and and risk management programs. Small businesses, and and a lot of times medium-sized businesses, may not be aware of their requirement to salute the PCI uh, data security standard, or they may never even heard of it. A lot of times, those small businesses will get a letter from, let's say they're processing credit card transactions and they're acquiring bank. Uh, an acquiring bank is an entity that actually acquires those transactions and helps to uh, process and settle those. It may actually reach out to their merchants and say, hey, are you aware of this standard and what are you doing to actually make sure you're compliant with it? As a matter of fact, the hierarchy of a chain of control and compliance validation is that the card brands hold the merchants or actually hold the acquiring banks accountable for making sure that all the acquiring bank merchants are accountable for PCI 
compliance. So if a merchant is not compliant, card brands don't necessarily, they can, but they don't necessarily reach out and start trying to, let's say, levy fines and penalties directly against the merchant. Once they can, they can. But what they do is they apply pressure to the acquiring banks and then they hold them accountable. And so if something bad happens, the card brands will hold uh, the acquiring bank accountable. There could be fines and penalties associated with that and that gets passed right down to the business. So there is a difference. And to that end, the PCI Security Standards Council has realized that and they've actually come up with what they call the prioritized approach to PCI compliance. It was specifically designed for small to medium businesses and specifically retail businesses. So what the PCI Council has done is broken out all the requirements in the PCI DSS and ranked those according to risk. And the gradient scale is from one through six. Obviously, the highest risk numerical rating would be for the highest risk. That's the way it's set up. And essentially, the philosophy around this is that you take all of the, of the results from your assessment, you apply the scoring system, and then if you really want to impart the most significant change in the shortest period of time, i.e. reduce the risk as quickly as possible, then you start, obviously, with the, the ones and twos and threes. And the great news about that is if, even if you can only start working on that, uh, the most critical risk factors and compliance controls, if you can remediate those, what happens is you end up remediating the risk in your environment and meeting PCI compliance in the shortest period of time possible. This is all concerted effort by the uh, major card brands and the PCI Council to try to assist those small to medium-sized businesses who really may be behind the eight ball and really don't know how to get started in that kind of thing. At the end of the day, we all have a responsibility to work together to help protect and preserve cardholder data and payment card transaction viability. In doing so, we can all help to raise the level of payment transaction security and confidence. I think that's the perfect way to close this off. So thanks again to David for talking to us about PCI compliance and what enterprises can do to make sure that they're following the rules and standards that have been set by the PCI DSS. To learn more about how Herjavec Group can help your business achieve and maintain PCI compliance, please visit herjavecgroup.com. Stay tuned for future episodes where we will talk ransomware, incident response plans, incorporating threat intelligence, and more. If you have any suggestions on topics you'd like us to cover, please contact us with your ideas at info at Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find the podcast on our website. And for more cybersecurity news, trends, and expert perspectives, please visit herjavecgroup.com. Until next time.